Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Hi everybody, welcome back. Yeah, th- welcome back to me as well because I wasn't here last week. Yes, welcome back Mark. Um, how are you feeling? Are you feeling better? Yeah, I'm so much better. Yeah, it was. Um, I was just in bed for three days. Uh, so it wasn't much fun, unfortunately. But yeah, I'm back to my best, hopefully. Uh, although I'm not going to be here next week either, am I? Because we have a guest on the show. We do. We've got a little, little surprise guest host next week. Because where are you? Uh, I'm in Malta. <sighs> on holiday yet again. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, enjoy. You should. You deserve it. You work hard, so why not? But yeah, I will be very jealous and I'll be cursing your name. But yeah, next Rude. week we've got a little a little surprise guest for everybody. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited about it because I know that this individual is uh I just know she'll be great anyway, but I know that she's true crime fanatic like us. So uh so yes, very exciting. So um thank you to our newest Patreon supporters. Did you want to read their names, Bethan? Oh yes, please. So thank you so much, Claire Allsop to Paul McMenemy. Oh no, this is why you did it because you thought I'd say someone's name wrong, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Paul, I really hope I've said your surname correctly. And Rachel Dane... Rachel, Rachel Dane. Dane. Rachel Dane. Dane. Oh my God. Sorry, Rachel. Rachel Jane Wollenscroft. Oh my gosh, Wollstonecroft, you... right. Um Apologies to... Again? No, no, we'll oh, leave that in. We're just going to leave that in for everybody. So, Claire, Paul and Rachel, thank you so much. <laughs> Sorry, guys, but thank you so much for your Patreon support. And we'd also like to say a little little surprise shout out to Claire, who's had her new little boy, Dean. So congratulations on your new baby. Your friend, Erin, who tells us you're both fans of the show, would like to say congratulations. Yeah, congratulations to you. Yeah, yeah I don't know what I was going to say. Well done. <laughs> well done. You didn't even say well done to me, Mark, when I had one. Crikey. No, well, you know, I did get you something, didn't I? Yeah, you did. I did, yeah. Um, Apologies if you could hear my laptop whirring away in the first two minutes of this. I've I've calmed it down now, so um, apologies. But uh, yeah, if you want to join any of those uh, Patreon supporters or all of them, uh, then all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. And if you want to buy us a coffee, you can do that as well. I don't really know how that works, but uh, you'll find us and you can buy us a coffee. Okay, so let's crack on with today's episode. The harrowing and deeply upsetting tale of how nine-year-old Daniel Hanley met his violent and horrifying death began on a cold, dark afternoon on the 2nd of October in 1994 on Tollgate Road in Beckton, a suburban district in East London. As the late afternoon, early winter daylight faded into darkness, nothing appeared to be out of the ordinary. Most of the residents along Tollgate Road were closing their curtains and getting settled for an early night before starting a new week the following day. The suburban street was quiet and peaceful, save for the odd pedestrian milling around, accompanied by the occasional hum of nearby traffic. Beckton was certainly not without its problems, but the area wasn't particularly dangerous. This was as true back in 1994 as it is now. Crime rates were relatively low, it was not at all uncommon for parents to allow the children to play out in the street, and overall the residents of Beckton usually felt pretty safe there. And that really worries me because that always somehow makes the case feel ten times worse because um, if you kind of know an area's history or a bit of a, uh, like, rumours about the area or you know that it is just inherently violent or something like that, you almost expect it and you can be on your guard, but none of these people are on their guard for anything to happen because it's just a 
standard suburban place. Yeah. Yeah, just completely normal area, um, suburb in, in East London. And, and you wouldn't be expecting what goes on to happen to, to happen, uh, which is, it's incredibly upsetting. Today's episode, I should have provided a warning actually, uh, which I'll do now because it's, um, we do go on to talk about sexual abuse of children, uh, not in any detail, of course. And, um, it's just, it's just a really sad, upsetting tale. So if you're not in a great place at the moment, this really isn't one to, to, to go to, right? right now. So this was, as we said, a a normal suburban road and therefore no eyebrows were raised and barely anyone even paid any heed to the two men who were sitting in their car, a silver blue Peugeot estate which was parked on the curbs midway along Tollgate Road. The two men had been cruising around the estate for more than an hour at this point, almost completely unnoticed, circling the block, driving a little and then stopping again, evidently searching for something, or someone. Both of the men inside the car certainly looked harmless enough. Sitting in the driver's seat was Tom Morse, a stocky, muscular 31-year-old former soldier who was from Islington in North London. As a younger man, Moores had spent just 18 months in the army before being discharged and was now leading a low-key, stable and apparently respectable life running a flower shop called Green Fingers in a small town called Bradley Stoke, a sleepy little town in South Gloucestershire, which is about a mile from where I live. And it's actually uh, situated six miles to the northeast of Bristol. The flower shop was doing well, but Moores still struggled to make ends meet, so he also worked the weekends moonlighting as a South London taxi driver. Although Tim Moores valued his privacy and kept his personal life firmly under wraps, his closest friends and most of his family knew that he was gay, and that he lived with an older man named David Guttridge, a 58-year-old businessman who owned a taxi firm, the same taxi firm that Moores worked for at weekends, and who had also loaned Moores the money to open his flower shop in Bradley Stoke. Moores and Gutteridge were a quiet and unassuming couple. They were well-liked by their neighbours. Neighbours described them as a friendly and polite pair who tended to keep themselves to themselves and never caused any problems. Needless to say, nobody had any reason to worry about Tim Moores or his boyfriend David. Customers of Moores' flower business were equally unconcerned with him. To most of his clients, Moores seemed harmless, welcoming and professional. Often he encouraged the local kids to come in and kill time in his shop, where he would jovially entertain them. He kept canisters of helium in the shop so that he could inflate decorative balloons for special champagne bouquets, and he would often use uh, he would often use that and let the boys breathe it in, and all their voices would go squeaky, and it was all funny and hilarious. Although I don't think that's very funny or responsible, do you? It's not very responsible, but it, it, I personally find it absolutely hilarious. Like. And this is potentially not going to sit with every one of our listeners, but I remember quite happy times going to Pizza Hut for the all-you-can-eat pizza, and then there'd always be balloons at the end of the little birthday party thing, and we'd all breathe in helium and have squeaky voices, and genuinely, I think I still think it's quite amusing. It does sound like jokes, actually. I was just told <laughs> I could never do it as a kid, do you know what? and it's that I not, might die. It is dangerous. It is dangerous, like breathing in anything that you're not supposed to breathe in, but I think breathing it a little bit. However... This really creeps me out because, like, why is he doing this? Why is he getting all these young boys in his shop and mm. and doing something that actually, yeah, their parents have probably said you shouldn't do this. So it's going to be a, a bit of a cheeky, fun thing to do and a bit naughty. And also, you're not really going to tell your mum and dad. 
It doesn't no. seem totally dangerous that you're going to be like, oh my God, we went to this guy's house and he made me jump off the roof. You're not going to mention that you went to some man's shop and he let no. you breathe in helium. This is really creeping me out already. But potentially you know that it's something that your parents would frown upon mm-hmm. and something that another adult has allowed you to do. So it's almost, it's the very beginnings of, of grooming potentially here. Yeah, I think so. It's, it smacks of that to me. This is a small secret that actually genuinely isn't that much of a big deal. If the parents said, well, why did you yeah. keep it secret? It was just a bit of harmless fun. But you start to have that confidant sort of side of things. And that bothers me with yeah. this because I can imagine where this case is going. Oh, it just, it's its really, um, a really, really troubling, horrible, horrible case. Um, so the kids liked Tim Moores, um, as did their parents. So when the kids asked their parents if they could go and work for him, delivering leaflets on their bicycles, the parents saw nothing wrong with that. To them, Tim was just a harmless business owner and also actually a valued figure within the community. However, what the residents of Bradley Stoke didn't know was that Tim Moores was the polar opposite of the harmless, friendly and gentle young man they assumed him to be. He was, in fact, a profoundly evil individual with some dark and sinister secrets. To put it bluntly, Tim Moores had a history of sexually abusing children. Nine years prior, in 1985, he had been jailed for seven years for raping twin boys whom he was supposed to have been babysitting. The boys were nine years of age when the truth was finally exposed, so I don't even know what age they were when the abuse happened. But it came out when they were nine, and by that time, Moores had been using them for his own perverted urges for a full four years, apologies, so they were five when that happened. The abuse he inflicted on them was as evil as it was merciless. Moores not only raped them, but he also slapped them until they cried in pain to further increase the buzz he got from the abuse. Moores had shared one of the boys with his best friend and had happily sat and watched as the boys were forced to submit to unthinkable acts of rape and sexual assault on multiple, multiple occasions. Well done to those boys at nine to be able to um, speak out and, and do something against their abuser and to have him then prosecuted. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, but it... um. Isn't it just horrible? I just can't put it in any other way. It's just what he did and then sharing those boys with his friend as well. You just can't, you can't, I cannot comprehend it. I really can't comprehend it. And we have, we have um, done over 150 episodes of Seeing Red and we immerse ourselves in true crime and it still shocks me. It You don't Completely get, you don't agree. get numb to it. No. Yeah. So going back to that cold winter night in 1994, 29-year-old Brett Tyler, who was the man sat next to Tim Moores in the passenger seat that night, was equally as evil and depraved as his friend sitting beside him. Like Moores, Tyler also worked part-time for the taxi company owned by Moores' boyfriend David Guttridge. Tyler's role there was as a controller, where he would put in extra long shifts for months at a time. So his goal was to earn as much money as he could in a short space of time so that he could then return to his other life, which was in the Philippines, where his earnings, which were relatively humble by London standards, made him a comparatively wealthy figure in Southeast Asia. Tyler's other life saw him living with his Filipino boyfriend in a luxurious villa, which was serviced by housemaids and kitted out with expensive furniture and top-of-the-range electronics. The house was located on the edge of the jungle in an isolated spot near a town called Olongapo. 
Brett Tyler lived well here, and due to his status as a wealthy white man, he made powerful connections with several figures of authority, including several high-ranking policemen, and also with politicians too. In Olongapo, he was known locally as the Reverend Brett Tyler, on account of him posing as a kindly priest. And he committed... I, know. I can imagine I'm where sure. this is going as well. And we, we saw this a bit with Richard Huckle. Yeah, Britain's this is what it's reminding me of. Yeah, he was going into Southeast Asia and making out that he was some kind of fucking do-gooder and then raping children left, right and centre. So um, this fake Reverend Brett Tyler committed to helping the local community by offering them spiritual guidance. And he would run religious services in his villa on a Sunday morning. He'd do that every single Sunday. So kids would come to his villa on the proviso uh, to their parents, at least, that this was, you know, for uh, learning about religion. None of the residents of Olongapo objected to either Tyler's presence in the town or his religious services. He was a welcomed individual who held a position of privilege and trust within the community there. They respected and trusted him wholeheartedly. It was all bullshit, of course. Tyler had done such a remarkable job of manipulating the Olongapo townsfolk into thinking he was harmless that almost none of them had any idea that he was in fact a monstrous paedophile who had been building a large video library which he kept hidden at his villa. Within the contents of this disgusting collection were literally dozens upon dozens of homemade tapes in which he'd recorded scenes of sexual abuse which he had inflicted on the young Filipino boys and girls whom he had attracted to his fake church. It later emerged that some of the victim's parents had indeed at times felt uncomfortable with Tyler's activities. None of them had any proof of wrongdoing, but some just couldn't shake the feeling that Tyler wasn't who he said he was. And I guess that's just that parental instinct, isn't it? You've got a kind of out-of-towner, a guy from a different culture who is almost too good to be true. He lives in this grand villa, he's got loads of staff, and he's trying to do good in the community with children. I I think, yeah, that's going to get your alarm bells sounding isn't it so despite these reservations most parents simply ignored their instincts reassuring themselves that tyler was a religious man and that he meant no harm one catholic priest who lived in the town did at one point vocally question tyler's presence in olongapo and speculated on his true intentions there However, the man was swiftly silenced after Tyler made significant donations to the local community in a successful bid to undermine these accusations. And there we go. That's going to be another reason why people, even if they've got their doubts and their worries, you're not going to be the the mum who spoke out and he left and you lost the, like, like for want of a better word, like cash cow. What if, yeah. he, you know, if he's not up to any anything bad and you've just ruined your whole town's sort of prospects, so... You can get why if they've got no evidence and no, and it's just a gut feeling, you you might not say anything. You might not want to rock the boat too much. Yeah, and I was going to say, yeah, you're right. If you've got no evidence, it's it's easy with hindsight to say we should have spoken up, but not many people would would speak up without having evidence to back it up because you could be totally wrong, and that could be so unfair mm-hmm. on this guy. Um, but yeah, of course, we now know that that he was completely um, a, a bad guy. So none of Tyler's influential friends from the local community had even considered that it was in fact the easy and abundant availability of desperately poor children which had first attracted him to the Philippines in the first place. 
It later emerged that Tyler had frequented a number of clubs and brothels where desperately poor children from destitute families went to be abused by depraved Western sex tourists in exchange for meagre amounts of cash. And that, again, just makes me so desperately sad that you have children working in brothels in these countries and you've got Western tourists from England, from the home counties, from normal towns and villages with respectable lives going out there as sex tourists and abusing these children who are so desperate for money and whose families in some cases are so desperate to put food on the table that they feel they have no choice but to send their children uh, to brothels to work. And of course, none of the authorities knew that in 1986, Brett Tyler had served four years in a British Young Offenders Institute for subjecting a nine-year-old boy and his sister to three years of vile sexual abuse. So Tim Moores and Brett Tyler were good friends. The pair had first met whilst incarcerated at Wormwood Scrubs Prison during the early 1990s, and they were both there uh, for child sex offences that they'd committed. However, they also had things in common. Most notably, they shared a very particular, very disturbing sexual fantasy. The men had been out like this a number of times before, cruising the streets within the more impoverished areas of London, hoping to make their ultimate fantasy a reality. As they roamed the quiet suburban streets night after night, they were eagerly looking for a boy, preferably blonde-haired, aged about nine or ten, and unsupervised. Once they had found a suitable target, their joint twisted fantasy was to abduct him, to rape him by force in front of a video camera, and finally to kill and dispose of him. And that is exactly what they were doing on that dark and chilly night on October the 2nd in 1994, when out of the blue they spotted a young, fair-haired boy of around 9 or 10 years of age pedalling towards him on a rusty sports bike without a saddle. He was all alone. The boy who had caught their attention was nine-year-old Daniel Hanley, a cheeky, smiley, lovable rogue type of a boy who, at only nine years old, was already making his own way in life. Despite coming from an impoverished family, Daniel was an ambitious and streetwise kid who loved to hustle. Outside of school hours, he worked as a trolley jockey at his local supermarket. He washed windscreens at traffic lights, delivered papers, did odd jobs for neighbours, just about anything he could to turn a few quid here and there. He usually used the money he'd earned to take himself off to a cafe for a bit of lunch or to buy clothes, food or cigarettes for his mum and brothers. Doesn't your heart just melt with this boy? What a little sweetheart. Like, what an amazing kid. Like a little mini Dell boy. Oh, absolutely. That's so true. Mm, I hadn't thought of that, but you're bang on. And then also that he's like getting himself some lunch or something or getting something for like his family as well. He's not hoarding this in a selfish manner. No. He just sounds adorable. He's not do, he's not up to no good with any of this, and I, I can almost picture I can almost picture him washing uh, screens at traffic lights, taking that few quid to the the news agent who probably knew him and his mom, and letting Daniel buy fags for his mom, even though he was only nine years old. It was yeah. that kind of vibe, I think. Um, so just about everybody on the estate knew and loved Daniel, as I'm sure you can imagine, and some of them even felt a little bit sorry for him. Of course they did. Daniel didn't have much of a home life. His mother Maxine had five kids, all of them boys, with Daniel being the fourth child. She'd divorced Daniel's father ten months earlier and had soon moved on to live with someone else. Even before she split with Daniel's father, Maxine had proven herself time and time again to be an entirely inadequate mother to her children. 
She could barely keep the family together to adequately feed or clothe them or even send them off to school consistently. However, after the divorce, life at the Hanley home became much, much worse. Maxine's new boyfriend was a violent, domineering, drug-addicted thug named Alex James, a man who suffered with debilitating personality problems and allegedly had an IQ of less than 70. He was so simple that it was said that he even had trouble reciting the days of the week. And I'm sure that the drugs aren't particularly helping either. Exactly, and I, I know it would be easy to kind of laugh at that, but he, he might have had um he might have suffered really bad abuse as a child himself and he might have had brain damage. So um, you know, this is desperately sad. And I'm saying that um Daniel's mum, Maxine, was this inadequate mother, and of course she was. And I'm not I'm not making excuses at all, but I I, I do feel a degree of sympathy for her because she's not chosen to set out to be a mum to five boys and to be a shit mom and to hook up with this twat of a boyfriend. She clearly is um you know seeking something that she was deprived of perhaps in childhood herself so um so yeah i'm not i'm not i'm not letting her off but i'm trying not to blame her too much for being a shit mom it's a hard one isn't it like you don't want to blame her but equally there's a lot of people at the same time who had five children and who were divorced who didn't go down that same path so yeah Mm. like it's i get what you're saying Maxine and boyfriend Alex spent most of their days drinking alcohol and taking drugs at the house with little or no regard for the needs of the children. So naturally, Daniel and his brothers were forced to fend for themselves. As a result of this, Daniel in particular spent significant amounts of time alone, outdoors, often hustling for cash by doing his odd jobs well into the late afternoon, which is presumably exactly what he was doing that fateful night in October when he unintentionally crossed paths with two sadistic paedophiles who held terrifying intentions for him. As soon as the two men in the car saw Daniel, they liked him. He was almost exactly what they'd been searching for over the last few days or so, and neither of them were willing to let the opportunity pass them by. As Daniel pedalled closer, Brett Tyler stepped out of the Peugeot and stood on the darkened pavement with a map in his hand. As Daniel pedalled past the car on the opposite side of the street, Tyler called out to the boy to ask him if he'd be able to help him as he was lost. Daniel stopped pedalling and, clearly not sensing the immense danger that he was now in, enthusiastically went over to the car to try and help the lost strangers. About the same time as this was happening, a passing motorist drove down Tollgate Road and could not help but notice this small boy chatting to a man beside a car, and he couldn't quite put his finger on it, but there was just something about the scene which bugged him. Choosing to act on his intuition, instead of driving straight on, the man reached the roundabout and circled back so that he could drive past again and take another look. However, by the time the man had reached the scene, both Daniel and the car had vanished. I I find it so frustrating when people don't, and this guy's only seen a real short snapshot of actually something that's probably looks quite innocent to most people, and this person's Mm. um, taking the time to go back. Like, fair play to them for for acting on that gut instinct, because I always remember someone like um, Penny when she was, calling out to other motorists you know yeah, begging Penny for Bell, help yeah. and people weren't even like people had seen her clearly in distress she was driving so slowly all of these things that were happening um and didn't do anything whereas this person's just seen something that's made them go hang on and they've gone back and it oh yeah. imagine if 
it'd been a split second longer that they'd been stood by the side of the road and he pulled over you just think about yeah. that for the rest of your life wouldn't you you would and, and you're so right with with the case of penny bell for example imagine if if one of the drivers that saw penny um gesticulating for help she was clearly in distress with a man with his hand forcibly on the steering wheel as she was trying to keep the car straight and it was swerving all over the road in london on the outskirts of london no one did anything imagine if some brave soul had just kind of blocked the car and gone what the hell is going on and went up to the window and and penny was was rescued and it reminds me also of the debbie lindsley case and debbie was murdered on the train as it went into victoria in london and we had that au pair didn't we who heard this attack going on for two minutes a brutal attack the train carriage that debbie was in was resembled an abattoir basically by the time her attacker had finished with her and the attack was prolonged and it was brutal and debbie was screaming for her life and someone could hear this in the next carriage and they couldn't see it but they could hear it and they didn't pull the cord to stop the train. And I honestly think that alone would have been enough to put a stop to that attack on Debbie and she may have escaped with her life, but it didn't happen. Even if she hadn't still hadn't survived just to apprehend her killer. It's yeah, it's so difficult because you don't know how you'd react in a situation until you're there. And this person, I mean, I don't know whether I would turn around at the next roundabout and go back. Mm. I don't know whether this scene would have, hinted to me that something was up I don't know but with the other two cases we've just referenced I genuinely can't understand not acting in some way I know there's a fine for pulling an emergency stop on a train but I would fight that fine till my dying breath with that because there was someone screaming in the next carriage. It's, yeah, I'd be like, it was an emergency. It's an emergency cord. I pulled yeah. it. Um, it's so hard, I, isn't I, it? Sorry. I do agree. I no, we've no, gone on a no. tangent there, but it, it does make me think, do you know what? Fair play to this motorist who's really tried. Yeah, because I'm not sure I would have actually circled back round. I, I would have looked at this scene and thought that's a bit weird, but not weird enough to maybe turn around again. But fair play to him for, for at least trying. So Daniel Hanley would never be seen alive again. Just over four hours later, at 10.46pm, Daniel's mother Maxine called the police to report that her nine-year-old son had failed to come home. So the Met Police launched an investigation almost immediately. Due to Daniel's age, they had grave concerns for his welfare. From the very beginning of the investigation, detectives working the case all theorised that they were more than likely dealing with a predatory kidnapper and in all probability a murderer. Other avenues and possibilities were of course considered and duly investigated. There was always a possibility that Daniel had simply run away. At that time his bike was missing and his home life was obviously volatile so to some detectives it was entirely plausible that Daniel had severed ties with his family and chosen to go it alone somewhere else and this was a really independent kid don't forget. So it wasn't far-fetched at all. By all accounts Daniel was smart and streetwise even for his young age and clearly knew how to financially sustain himself to a certain degree. So you know this is a kid that could have run away and probably survived on the streets for weeks I would have thought. Absolutely yeah. Very sadly that would be the case but um, but yeah he would have survived for weeks. Unfortunately, three days later, after hearing about the ongoing investigation into Daniel's disappearance, two boys from the estate came forward and admitted to police that they had found Daniel's bike lying on a grassy verge just around the corner from Tollgate Road and they'd taken it home with them. So this obviously then sounded alarm bells with the police. He hadn't taken his bike with him. 
So, yeah, this validated the initial theory that Daniel had indeed been kidnapped. And so the police focused all of their time and resources now into two main factors of investigation. Looking into sightings of Daniel and looking into the potential discovery of his body. The police appealed to the wider public for information on the whereabouts of Daniel. Social media wasn't a thing back then, of course, so his picture was circulated in the local and national newspapers and on television. And within the space of a week, police officers had followed up on countless reported sightings of Daniel, with almost all of them eventually turning out to be false or simply mistaken. At that point, the only verified sighting of Daniel was that of the man in the car who had noticed him talking to the two men in the silver-blue Peugeot. It wasn't much, but it presented the investigators with at least one solid lead. They had at least a vague description of the two men who they now believed were the prime suspects in Daniel's disappearance. The lead detective in the case, Detective Superintendent Ed Williams, appeared on the BBC show Crime Watch and put out another appeal for information, sharing descriptions of the two main suspects and the car with the British public. Within a couple of days, Williams and his team had received 138 calls from people who believed they had seen the car. All of the calls were followed up on carefully and thoroughly, but once again, none of the reported sightings amounted to anything. Daniel had vanished and the trail was quickly going cold. Unwilling to give up on finding out what happened to Daniel, investigators deployed divers to search the nearby river, canal and the docks, and police carried out coordinated searches of wasteland and warehouses and started visiting the homes of known paedophiles in the area. But still, they found nothing. At one point in December 1994, so this is two months after Daniel had vanished, the police arrested Daniel's mother Maxine and a boyfriend Alex James on suspicion that they had had some kind of involvement in Daniel's disappearance. This is very Shannon Matthews. It makes sense. It really does make sense. I guess it sense. does, yeah. And, yeah. I mean, they've looked at a lot of other avenues before they focused on this. Yeah, I think they're probably desperate at this point. So yep. it's kind of like, well, we, we're not we're not suspicious, but let's kind of get them in and arrest and them and sure. question them properly. Yeah. And the theory that the police held was that Alex, a known thug, could have lost his temper perhaps at Daniel and killed him and Maxine could possibly be covering up the incident. So not the only uh, instance we've seen of that happening, like no. John Benet Ramsey perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, however, they both denied the allegations, and after many hours of extensive and intense questioning, Maxine soon persuaded the police that she was telling them the truth. Alex James was also assessed by a criminal psychologist who concluded that, although he clearly had a violent nature, he was far too simple-minded to be able to concoct and sustain such a complicated lie, and so he must be telling the truth. So, basically, he was too thick to pull something like this off. He's potentially got the the out you know go out there and just accidentally do something or do something violent but yeah to then also keep this and keep up a a lie and everything for as long as they had yeah it doesn't sound like it would work with them no detective superintendent williams accepted that they had had no involvement and maxine and alex were both released without charge This infuriating lack of progress also presented a different kind of problem for the police now. They had no definitive evidence that a crime had even been committed, let alone evidence that would identify a perpetrator. And to make matters worse, apart from that one and only sighting of Daniel chatting to the two men next to a car, there were no other clues to Daniel's whereabouts whatsoever, and at this point, the trail was officially cold. 
Then, on March the 27th in 1995, six months after Daniel's disappearance, the police's worst fears were finally realised. A man who was out walking his dog near a golf course in a small town just north of Bristol found what he at first believed to be an old safety helmet. On further inspection, he was horrified to realise that he was staring at the small skull of a child. When the police arrived at the scene, they found a discarded bright red jumpsuit with Champion written across it, the exact outfit that Daniel had been wearing when he was last seen. Daniel's dental records confirmed that this was his skull. A further search of the area revealed 26 other small bones buried nearby. Despite being completely devastated by this heartbreaking discovery, it did breathe new life into the investigation, which was now one of murder, of course. A press conference was quickly arranged and Detective Superintendent Ed Williams again turned to Crime Watch to ask for help, particularly in asking for sightings of Daniel in the Bristol area. So don't forget he was abducted in London and his body was found in Bristol, which is 120 miles away. Within hours of the appeal, Williams and his team were duly rewarded with a series of new leads. This time around, the clues were much more promising. One credible witness contacted the police and reported seeing a highly distressed little boy who matched Daniel's description wearing a bright red jumpsuit being forcibly dragged along a Bristol street by two men. Another highly credible source reported that she had been having a coffee with a daughter in Paul's Cafe in Thornbury, a small market town just outside of Bristol, several months prior. So this would have been months after Daniel had been abducted. Oh my God. Uh, Yeah, and that she had noticed a boy who looked very much like Daniel sitting with three men. According to the witness, the little boy had seemed extremely anxious and looked as though he wasn't there of his own accord. One of the men at the table was described as thick-set and muscular, a bull of a man. The witness went on to provide the police with a vivid and highly detailed description of him, and straight away the police believed they had their prime suspect a man who had apparently kept Daniel captive for months before finally killing him. But who was he? Investigators widely circulated a detailed composite sketch of the prime suspect through the press and hoped for a lead, and they didn't have to wait long. A few days later, police received an extraordinary call from a psychiatrist who had seen Daniel's case on Crime Watch. Breaking his code of therapist-patient confidentiality, he described to the police how he had once had a patient who had come to a group therapy session and openly boasted of his fantasy to abduct, rape and murder a little boy. This man had been so callous and his revelations so dark and disturbing that the psychiatrist had never been able to forget about him. Even though he had a duty not to disclose what his patients told him, he had ultimately decided that under such distressing circumstances, like absolutely, he had a moral obligation to say something. Like, I get it. Because I think sometimes you're allowed to say something if you feel someone's going to be immediately in danger. So he couldn't have said anything at that time because he hadn't said, I'm about to go and do X, Y, Z. But actually, this is valid for yeah. someone who's being murdered so yeah oh i'm so glad that he came forward what a what a ridiculous thing as well like boasting about this fantasy and it's just bizarre i just cannot get my head around it i mean he might not have been boasting about it he might have been saying this is a dark fantasy that i can't control and that i have and i will never act on it but i need some therapy to kind of get over it it could have I been feel that. like if the psychiatrist is saying it that he was boasting though i think that that is how the impression at least came across yeah. to the psychiatrist. 
And in theory, legally, you probably could boast of that and there'd be no consequences because you've not committed a crime. You've, no. You're not saying that you are. You're just saying that I've got a fantasy, yeah. even though it's absolutely cruel and vile and would be illegal if you acted it out. But he's not saying I've acted anything out or I have an intention of doing that. He's no, just saying exactly. that's my fantasy. Vile. What worried the psychiatrist most, he told police, was that this man lived in the area where the body had been found, and he remembered the patient's name. It was Tim Morse. As soon as investigators began digging into the Tim Morse lead, they knew they were on the right track. They discovered his conviction for child abuse, that he worked driving taxis in London, very close to the area where Daniel lived, and also that he was living in Bradley Stoke, relatively close to the spot where Daniel's remains were discovered. But by far the most damning piece of evidence was Morse's physical description, which was a near identical match to the one that had been given to the police by the witness in Paul's cafe, so of this kind of really stocky, built guy. All the police's hard work had paid off. They had more than enough circumstantial evidence to make an arrest now. On May the 30th, Detective Superintendent Ed Williams and his team arrested Tim Moores and his boyfriend David Guttridge in London. Two weeks later, detectives also tracked down and arrested Brett Tyler in the Philippines, who was swiftly brought back to the UK to face up to what he'd done. After very little interrogation, all three men made detailed confessions, and the police were finally able to uncover the truth of what had happened to Daniel Hanley. I cannot imagine being on the detective team that had to hear these confessions. I just can't imagine that at all. And back in the mid-90s, when we didn't really talk about uh, mental well-being, they might not have had uh, the support at work that you would imagine the police force has now. Oh my god, I didn't even think about that. You'd need some sort of support to deal with having to listen to this, surely, yeah. It was Brett Tyler who broke first and provided police with the most damning details. In a long and detailed confession, Tyler described how he and Morse had kidnapped Daniel and taken him to the office of David Guttridge's taxi company and briefly kept him prisoner in the flat upstairs. After setting up a video camera, both men had taken it in turns to rape him while the other recorded it. When they'd finished their night of abuse, they put Daniel back in the car and hit the road, cruelly telling him that they were driving him home. Instead, however, they had stopped at the home of Brett Tyler's father to pick up a garden fork and spade and then set off down the M4 towards Bristol. They had briefly considered keeping Daniel as a prisoner to abuse him whenever they wanted. However, they ultimately decided against it because they had nowhere secure enough to keep him. So instead, they had pulled off the motorway at Junction 14, I think of the M5, climbed into the back seat where Daniel was by now asleep and together... The two monstrously evil men strangled Daniel to death with a tow rope. David Guttridge's confession provided the police with even greater details. He described how eight months earlier Morse had seen police talking about his car on Crime Watch and had confessed to him that he and Tyler had been the ones responsible. According to Guttridge, Morse had been a nervous wreck in the months following on from the kidnapping. When Daniel's body had been discovered, Morse began to completely freak out and begged Guttridge to give him the money to fly to the Philippines with Tyler until the heat had died down. Morse did briefly abscond to the Philippines, but he returned when Guttridge convinced him to stay in the UK and keep a low profile there. Referring to his younger boyfriend, David Guttridge described Morse as a block of ice wrapped in barbed wire. 
a man who was capable of raping children and then blaming the parents for being so stupid as to let them near him, a man who allegedly whined to Guttridge about the murder of Daniel Hanley, cruelly commenting, and this is vile, quote, it was a complete waste, we only got one fuck. Oh my god, ugh. It's possibly the worst fucking case we've ever covered. And what the fuck is this Guttridge guy doing? Just like going, okay, cool. Well, let's just still be in a relationship and live together and whatnot. Like, what? yeah, and he he hadn't like partaken in this abuse no. of Daniel. He he didn't know about it until afterwards, and he's there putting money up for um, Tim Moore's bloody flower shop and giving him money left, right, and center, and giving his mates jobs. Like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? The confessions were accepted by the detectives as a true and accurate account of how Daniel had been killed. However, one extraordinary detail stood out like a sore thumb. If the confessions were indeed true, then Daniel had died within six hours of being abducted. In which case, the boy who was seen in Paul's cafe in Thornbury several months later, but a couple of months after Daniel had disappeared, couldn't have been him. The picture of the muscular bull of a man seen in the cafe had been a false clue, and yet it had led the police directly to the culprits. It was almost as if some hidden divine force had been guiding the police to the truth. And they definitely hadn't had another child. No. They hadn't... Co- no, okay, my that's thought, actually, yeah, my, yeah. My th- yeah, my thoughts exactly, but absolutely not. So this was just a complete coincidence. It was three guys with a boy, and it was legitimate. But this woman, having seen the appeal on Crime Watch, had come forward, done a, an e-fit of, of one of these guys, and someone had come forward and said, oh my God, that's, that's Tim Moores, and it, it wasn't him. But when the police got his name and looked into him... You know, they established that actually this is the guy we're looking for. It might not have been the guy who was in the cafe who this woman thinks she's seen, but it was, it's a right look and it's this guy. And yeah, we look into him and we can see all this history and, and it all fits. The jigsaw uh, puzzles fell into place, the jigsaw pieces. Tim Moores and Brett Tyler were charged with murder and David Guttridge was charged with assisting an offender. All three men were denied bail and remanded into custody. After his arrest, Brett Tyler suffered a mental breakdown whilst in custody and became very vocal about how he felt regarding what he'd done. He began cutting his arms and legs with anything sharp that he could lay his hands on and he was now apparently haunted in his cell by visions of Daniel. Good, and maybe it wasn't just visions, maybe that was the ghost of Daniel haunting him. Tyler admitted to custodial staff that he and Morse had revisited Daniel's grave and had once dug up the body as some kind of sick, bizarre kick. Afterwards, Tyler had felt so full of guilt and self-hatred that he unsuccessfully tried to kill himself and was admitted to hospital. Despite his alleged remorse, because it could just be a cover, um, he had swiftly left the UK not long afterwards and continued to pose as a priest in the Philippines in order to abuse the local children. So he just couldn't stop himself. He says he feels so guilty about what he's done to Daniel, but he goes straight back out to the Philippines and carries on now. Detective Superintendent Ed Williams' men, who had tracked him down there, managed to locate several homemade videos which proved the abuse that he'd been committing in the Philippines also. David Moores and Brett Tyler were found guilty of Daniel Hanley's murder at the Old Bailey on the 17th of May in 1996. They were sentenced to life imprisonment by the trial judge who condemned them as vultures and recommended that they should never be set free. After their trial, it was revealed that the pair were serial child sex offenders who had also abused children in the Philippines together. 
and it was later ruled that they will remain in prison until at least 2045 when they will be 82 and 80 respectively. So that's where they are still to this day, thank God. And that is it, that is the end. There is no happy ending other than justice was served. It did prevail in this case and that's something, but oh, what a sad, I mean, torturous is, tale. Yeah, that is just horrific. Um, but amazing to remember Daniel and to remember like the little cheeky chappy that he was and that side of things, but really, really sad, tragic. Yeah. I usually say thanks for the episode, Mark, but... Um, I know. Hmm. I think we should just leave it there, so... I think we should. Thank you for listening, everybody. We'll uh, we'll see you next week with a surprise guest. Speak to you guest. then. Bye.